Exodus 23, and we're going to look at these. Uh, we've been looking at the civil law uh, of Israel here according to Exodus. And uh, the last section we were touching here were the three feasts. And of course, it just takes one verse here for him to mention these feasts. But I'm breaking that down a little bit more. I'm going a little more into depth. I could go a lot more into depth with these, but I didn't want to bore you. So I, I'm trying to keep it uh, somewhat moving along here. But there's some very interesting things that I like bringing out in relation to these feasts. And hopefully it's been a help to you so far. And so <clears throat> today, excuse me, <clears throat> today we're going to be looking at uh, the Feast of, the, of Harvest, which is really the Feast of Pentecost. Uh, we've been looked, uh, we looked at the first one already, the Feast of the Unleavened Bread. Uh, that included um, uh, one, uh, one other feast, or a couple of other feasts. The first one was the Feast of the Passover. And, of course, the next one we're looking at today somewhat is the Feast of First Fruits, and that'll be on the, the, the Sunday of that week uh, is when this Feast of First Fruits took place. But we'll look at that a little bit as we go through here. And so chapter 23, uh, let's look at number 14. We'll read down uh, to verse number 17. It says, Three times thou shalt keep a feast unto me in the year. Thou shalt keep the feast of unleavened bread. Thou shalt eat unleavened bread seven days, as I commanded thee in the time appointed of the month Abib, or Nisan, we've been using that word as well, for in it thou camest out of Egypt, and none shall appear before me empty. And the feast of harvest, the feast first fruits of thy labors, which thou hast sown in the field, and the feast of ingathering, which is in the end of the year, when thou hast gathered in thy labors out of the field. Three times in the year, all thy males shall appear before the Lord God. Amen. Let's pray. I ask you, Lord, that you would just uh, bless as we get into this lesson tonight. I pray, Lord, we'd be able to get through some things that'll, that'll help us understand in a better way who you are and how you want to impact our lives and how you want us to grow, especially looking at the Feast of Pentecost. Uh, Lord, we thank you for the Holy Spirit of God, and we do pray, Lord, that you would help us to be more surrendered so we can be spirit-filled Lord, I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so we're going to look at number one, the Feast of First Fruits, all right? Uh, letter A, the Feast of First Fruits occurs during the Feast of the Unleavened Bread after the Sabbath. And so we all know the timetable by now. You should almost have it in your head. Uh, Jesus Christ, when did, he, when did he actually have the Lord's Supper according to our week? What day was that? Wednesday. Nope. <laughs> good answer but no <laughs> it was actually tuesday night but of course because their day starts at 6 p.m that's what throws us off all the time amen uh so the the 15th of nissan is when jesus christ was crucified he also had the passover on that same day but it was the evening before and so that's why in the book of genesis where the world was created uh they always said and the evening and the morning were the first day and the evening and the morning were the second day. So the day actually started in the evening, not like ours, which starts at midnight. All right? So we changed that. But scripturally, uh, the Jewish day started at 6 p.m. the day before. And so Jesus Christ was actually uh, observing the Passover supper that same night. After 6 p.m., uh, he went to the garden that night. He was arrested that night. 
And then the next morning is when he was brought to trial and he was crucified. And of course, uh, before that next day, 6 p.m. came by, he was already dead. They took him off the cross because at that 6 p.m. would mark the next day, which was the preparation for the Feast of the Unleavened Bread. That was a high holy day. That was a Sabbath day. And so Jesus couldn't be left on the cross during that Thursday from the 6 p.m. before, the day before, all right? And so that's when the Feast of Unleavened Bread started. Uh, It ended the next week on the Wednesday, all right? And that was the last day of the Feast of the Unleavened Bread. Uh, But uh, the Feast of First Fruits was was tucked in the middle there uh, because after the Sabbath, the Saturday came, which is our Sabbath, and at 6 p.m. on our Saturday begins the new day, the first day of the week for the Jews. And so that's what throws us off sometimes when we're reading the scripture. We're thinking that the day is somehow starting in the morning or at midnight or so forth. But actually the first day of the week for the Jews started on a Saturday night at 6 p.m. That's where their Sunday began, all right? And that's why sometimes you got to remember these things as you're reading scripture and getting the context of those things. But the Feast of first fruits would take place on the morrow after the Sabbath. So not on the Saturday, but on the Sunday. After the 6 p.m., that would be the day of the first fruits. all right? Um, in Leviticus 23, verse 11, it says, And he shall wave the sheaf before the Lord to be accepted for you. On the morrow, after the Sabbath, the priest shall wave it. Um, let's move on. Deuteronomy 16, verse 9. My thing has frozen up here. There we go. And uh, it says here in Deuteronomy 16, it says, Seven weeks shalt thou number unto thee. Begin to number the seven weeks from such a time as thou beginnest to put the, the sickle to the corn. And thou shalt keep the feast of weeks unto the Lord thy God with a tribute of a free will offering of thine hand, which thou shalt give unto the Lord thy God, according as the Lord thy God hath blessed thee. Uh, the letter B it was observed by bringing a wave offering of first fruits of the barley harvest. And the reason why I'm talking about the first fruits, because it was really within the unleavened bread week, the reason why I'm talking about it now with the second feast is because that's where the timing took place as far as when that second feast would take place. Uh, 50 days from that first fruit offering, that's when the feast of Pentecost took place. All right. You'd have the first fruits, the waving of that first fruits, and then after that you'd wait 50 days, and that would be the Feast of Pentecost after that. And so the, the wave offering, so on that Sunday of that unleavened bread week, they would wave the offering before the Lord, and of course that was of the barley harvest, and so we'll look at that a little bit as well. In Leviticus 23 verse 9 it says, And the Lord spake unto Moses, saying, Speak unto the children of Israel, and say unto them, When ye, shall, when be, when ye be come into the land which I give unto you, and shall reap the harvest thereof, then ye shall bring a sheaf of the firstfruits of your harvest unto the priest. And he shall wave the sheaf before the Lord to be accepted for you. On the morrow after the Sabbath, the priest shall wave it. And so the harvest would last 49 days, and that's when the Feast of Pentecost would take place. Let her see, the, first, the Feast of first fruits is a picture of the resurrection of Christ. So when we're looking at these three feasts, Passover represents what? His crucifixion. The unleavened bread pictures what? 
the burial, the taking away of sins. The Feast of first fruits pictures the resurrection. So there you have within these three feasts, the gospel being pictured. The death, the burial, and the resurrection. All right? And so that's important to understand. Uh, but we see this in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 20. It says, But now is Christ risen from the dead and become the first fruits of them that slept. For since by man came death, by man came also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ shall all be made alive. But every man in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, afterward they that are Christ at his coming. And so that's why this first wave offering is completely representative of Christ himself, this barley wave offering, because he is the firstfruits before all of us. Now you may say, well, what about Lazarus? He was raised from the dead. And what about the, some of these other ones? Well, the only problem is they had to die again. <laughs> Amen. He was the first one to be raised to life eternal, which means to an incorruptible, glorious body. Uh, nobody had that before Christ raised from the grave. Uh, he would call up Lazarus from the grave, and sure, but he still had his, his physical human body that was corrupt, and he would have to die again. Poor guy. <laughs> Amen. But that just, uh, that's a difference there. And so Jesus Christ is the first fruits of the resurrection. In Adam all die, so in Christ shall all be made alive. So based upon this first fruit offering, the wave offering, the Lord accepted it. And because he accepted that, he accepted the rest of the harvest. And so that's why it's so important. So in Christ shall all be made alive. So if he didn't rise, then what would happen to you? Well, you wouldn't have eternal life. You would have to go to the grave and stay there for eternity. And so because Christ arose, then those after him will also rise as well. And so that's the picture there. In Colossians 1.16, it says, For by him were all things created that are in heaven, that are in earth, visible and invisible, whether they be thrones or dominions or principalities or powers. All things were created by him and for him. And he is before all things. And by him all things consist. And he is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he might have the preeminence. All right? So there's a principle of scripture, <clears throat> principle of interpretation, that's called the Christ-centric principle. So when you're looking at the scripture, what you need to understand is this, that everything in the Bible has Christ at its center. He is preeminent in everything. Even at suffering, even in persecution. I mean, everything you look at in the scripture, Christ is a center. So you can't make yourself center, all right? Look at all the trouble I go through. No, Christ is the center of that. And that's why he said, the world hated me before they hated you. See, that Christ-centric principle teaches us that he is always the one at the center. So we don't take preeminence. He gets preeminence, whether that's bad or whether that's good whether it's something hard or whether it's something easy, you know, he is always at the center of that. And we need to understand that's a good principle for us to go by when we study the scripture. Okay, number one, the Lord would accept the first fruits when weighed before him. And we already read that. I likened that to Mark 1 verse 11. And there came a voice from heaven saying, Thou art my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Amen. And Matthew 12, 18, Behold my servant whom I have chosen, my beloved in whom my soul is well pleased. 
I will put my spirit upon him, and he shall show judgment to the Gentiles. And so Jesus Christ is that, the, the one that pleases God. In Matthew 17, 5, While he yet spake, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and behold, a voice out of the cloud which said, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Hear ye him. All right? And so what's happening with Christ's life? He's being waved before the Father. And the Father looks down. What pleases the Father when he looks down to mankind? Only his son. So when he had something to say, he didn't say, oh, look at that preacher. In him I'm well pleased. He never said that one time. Even the Apostle Paul, somebody that probably deserved a good pat on the back, he didn't say it about him, but he said it about his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen? And so that's, he has the approval. So the, the fact of the matter is if Jesus Christ is approved of God the Father, then you in Christ are also approved. That's what, that's what that principle of the first fruits is all about. Uh, number two, the harvest could not be eaten until the first fruits were offered. And so you don't eat it until that first fruits is given. And that there, once again, you see that type uh, put out there in Leviticus 23, 14. It says, you shall eat neither bread nor parched corn nor green ears, until the selfsame day that ye have brought an offering unto your God, it shall be a statute forever throughout your generations in all your dwellings. So don't eat of the, of the harvest until you brought the first fruits unto the Lord. Amen. Once you do that, then you can eat the harvest. And so there's that principle played out again. Number three, the Lord would bless the whole harvest as the first fruits were offered. And you see that in Ephesians 1.5 having predestinated us unto the adoption of children by Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace, wherein, in what? Wherein Christ he hath made us accepted in the beloved. All right? So that acceptation is as we are in Christ and in him alone. So anybody not in Christ is not accepted. But everybody in Christ is accepted. Amen. You're accepted by the Lord. Uh, letter D. The Lord set a pattern for all believers that the Lord should be honored with the first fruits of our substance to bless the remainder of the harvest. So this is where, you know, sometimes we talk about tithing and the tithing is somewhat detached from the principle. And what we have here is the principle. This is what it all started with, this, this aspect of the first fruits of the resurrection. So really, when we're giving our first fruits of our paycheck or we're giving our first fruits of our time, why do you come to church on a Sunday? <laughs> it's the first of the week. You're giving him the first day of the week. It means something to the Lord. <laughs> so every time you give him the first fruits of everything, you your first fruits of your time, the first fruits of your substance, the first fruits of your paycheck. The, you know, you talk about that, well, is it before or after taxes? <laughs> Well, it depends if you're giving the government the first fruits or you're giving Jesus the first fruits. <laughs> Amen? And that's where you have to make your decision. <laughs> you know, Am I going to give the government first or am I going to give Jesus first? Well, you don't understand. I, I mean, they already take it off my check. I don't even see it. Yeah, but you gave it to them. You know, the, the whole amount was the increase. And then you gave the government while well, they took it. <laughs> I guess you have to, unless you're self-employed. Amen. And then, you know, they take it. And so that means your first fruits would be off of, not off of what's left after the government, but before the government touched your amount. 
You get that? I know we don't want to talk about that. You say, preacher, it's hard enough. <laughs> you know, I know that. Wouldn't it be great if Jesus says, oh, it's okay. But the fact of the matter is then you can't call it first fruits. You can say, I'm giving to the Lord. And by the way, if we give a tithe and you give 9%, you've not tithed. Do you understand that? I mean, what do you mean? I've not been tithing all these years? Well, a tithe is a tenth. That's what the word means. <laughs> Amen. So according to scripture, I have to give a tenth of my, my first fruits unto the Lord. And that wasn't the law issue. In fact, you see, we go back to Jacob uh, when he had the dream at Bethel there. And uh, even before that, his Abraham, Abraham tithed to Melchizedek. And uh, after that, Jacob, when God promised that he would take care of him, he says, well, if you're going to take care of me, you're going to protect me then I will give you a tenth of all that you have given me. See, he acknowledged first off that what I have isn't mine. It's something that God gave me. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to give you one-tenth back to you. Amen? Now, people today, they'll argue that, but they're not going to argue that because of Scripture. (laughs) They argue that because they don't want to give the money. You understand that? So what's more important, to be obedient or to have more money in your bank account when you get your paycheck. That's your choice. I mean, the Bible says you can't serve two masters because you'll either love the one and hate the other. So what's going to happen is the more you decide not to be obedient, the more you're going to despise messages like the one I'm just telling you right now. But if you've already chosen to be obedient, then you're going to say, hey, that's great. Praise God. Amen. You know? So that's, the, that's the, the effect that that has is when we choose a, a secondary master. We begin to despise the first one. <laughs> you know, anything, that ha- anything he requires, we're going to start despising it, looking down on that, discounting it, and making it a, a, a biblical argument of some kind. When in all reality, there's really no argument. It's very clear throughout Scripture. Amen? And so... Even Jesus, when he talked to the Pharisees, it says, he said, you tithe and you do all these things, but the weightier matters, you've omitted the mercy and the judgment and so forth, and those are important. He says, those you ought to have done, but not to leave these undone. So he gave them credit for the things that they did do, the tithing and so forth, but he says, you've also left these other ones undone, the mercy and the judgment and the things that are weightier in the heart. Amen? And um, so anyways, uh, Proverbs 3, verse 9, it says, Honor the Lord with thy substance and with the first fruits of all thine increase, so shall thy barns be filled with plenty and thy presses shall burst out with new wine. So what is he teaching us here? He's saying that if the first fruits are given and the Lord approves that, then the remainder is blessed with that first approval. And that's the same thing with the resurrection. <laughs> you see, so when we're giving our first fruits, we're really just, we're, we're actually typifying the resurrection every time we get a paycheck. We're, we're, we're showing that to the Lord, our, our faith in that, and are wanting to honor him in that, you see. 
So the principles are very powerful in Scripture, amen? Say, preacher, I, why do you have to say that? Now I have to really think about this. I, I understand that, <laughs> you know? It's easier not to do the things that cost us something, amen? But the fact of the matter is, if I'm not willing to do that, what's going to happen if God really requires something of me? You know, I guarantee you those that were put to death at, at the stake, burnt alive, I guarantee you they were tithers. They weren't Bible arguers. <laughs> See, because if I'm not willing to sacrifice in that little stuff, in the carnal, how would I sacrifice my life for that which is invisible? Amen? So I, either I have a faith that <laughs> what God says is true, and all of this is going to come to fruition, <laughs> which will impact not only my carnal life, the things that I do carnally, but it'll also impact the things that I do spiritually and by faith. You understand? <laughs> so it's not just the things I see, it's the things I don't see. And that's why the Lord uh, said, in the, said in the scripture as well, he says, how can you say you will obey a God that you cannot see if you're disobedient to the master that you can see? Amen? <laughs> and so, so that's, that's how far our Christianity is going. How far does it go? Does it go into the invisible? Because that's where faith begins. That's where the pleasing God begins, by the way, is with our faith. All right? Not with the things you see. And so there's been times, even when I'm tithing, and I say, Lord, you know, things are real tough right now. And this could really help me pay a bill or something I need to do. And you know what? God doesn't say, oh, yeah. Just go pay the bill. Because he knows that he can do more through my faith than through that money. So he never gives me an excuse not to obey him. Now, I may choose at that point that which I see over that which I cannot see. But I'm not pleasing him, <laughs> you know. He's saying, just trust me. Give me that which you can see, and I'll take care of that which you cannot see and what you cannot make sense in your mind about, you know? Because if you have to see it, well, then it's no longer my faith, and you're not pleasing him anyways, amen? So you can't just figure it out, all right? And so, uh, anyways, that's the first fruits. Uh, now we're going to move up to the Feast of the Harvest, uh, the Feast of the Pentecost, and uh, we're going to look at letter A. Uh, the Feast of the Harvest was also known as the Feast of Shabbat, or the Feast of Weeks. And so you hear that, that term used by the Jewish people. It just simply means weeks. A week is a set of seven, right? It doesn't necessarily mean days. It can mean years. It can mean a set of anything, you know, any type of week. Uh, the 70-week prophecy of Daniel is referring to years, <laughs> weeks of years. But here we're talking about weeks of days, all right? And so Deuteronomy 16, 16, it says, three times in a year, shall all thy males appear before the Lord thy God in the place which he shall choose in the Feast of Unleavened Bread and in the Feast of Weeks. And so he doesn't use the Feast of the Harvest here. He actually explains it as the Feast of Weeks. And in the Feast of Tabernacles. And there he updates that word as well. It's not the ingathering. Now it's the Feast of Tabernacles. All right, And they shall not appear before the Lord empty. So number one, seven Sabbaths would be counted from the Feast of the first fruits, And I apologize, I know some of this stuff is uh, a little teachy about, you know, the, the textual stuff. 
the practical comes after this. All right, I just want you to understand what this is made of, what, it, what it's all consisting of, all right? And so Leviticus 23, 15, it says, And ye shall count unto you from the morrow after the Sabbath, from the day that ye brought the sheaf of the wave offering, seven Sabbaths shall be complete. What seven Sabbaths? How many days is that? Seven times seven? Forty-nine. So 49 days are going to go by. So here you are. You're having the Saturday, which is the Sabbath. On the morrow after that Sabbath, you have the Feast of the First Fruits. Now he says, count seven Sabbaths. One, two, three, you know, and which would land you on the Saturday. So the Feast of Pentecost was on the morrow after the Sabbath. So what day was the Feast of Pentecost? On the Sunday. On the Sunday. Which makes sense. They were out preaching on the Sunday. <laughs> Amen. And so, of course, that doesn't always fit on the same calendar, does it? Because it changes. But that year, that's exactly how it all fit, according to the dates and calendar and so forth. All right. And so, number two, the day of the feast was known as Pentecost, referring to the 50th day after the feast of first fruits. And so, 50th, that's what Penta is. Uh, it's, it's five, and so Pentecost is 50th. Uh, letter B, the Feast of Weeks marked the first fruits of the wheat, wheat harvest. And so it says in verse chapter 34, verse 22, Thou shalt observe the Feast of Weeks of the first fruits of the wheat harvest and the Feast of the end gathering at the end of the year. So basically what's happening is here. Number one, there are three harvest periods in Israel, barley, wheat, and fruit. And each one of these feasts have to do with one of these products here. The first one, the wave offering, was waving barley. The second one was waving wheat. And the third one is waving fruit. All right? And so each one of these had to do with a different harvest. So there's three harvests for, the, for Israel. It's not like that with all of us in Canada. Sometimes we're lucky to get one harvest, you know. But in Israel, they would have three harvest seasons. They would have the, the barley season, they'd have the wheat season, then they would have the fruit season. All right, so that's what we're dealing with here. Um, each feast event was marked by an offering of first fruits. And so there was one during the unleavened bread, there's one during the Feast of Pentecost, and there's also another one further up at the Feast of Tabernacles. Okay, just so you know that. Um, letter C. The offerings of the Feast of Weeks. I'm just going to go quickly through this, but there's something I wanted you to see here. Number one, the meat offering. Like I said, meat to me is a steak. <laughs> you know, but in, in the Old Testament, meat is actually referring to your wheat or something that's been put together like a bread or something like that had to do with flour. All right? That would be the meat offering. And so this meat offering is two leavened loaves of bread were the wave offering. Now this confuses me a bit because the Lord doesn't want us to offer leaven before the Lord. But here in regards to this wave offering, he says, I want you to wave two leaven loaves of bread. Now why? Why would there be two leaven loaves of bread? Well, Leviticus 23, we'll read this verse in 16. Even unto the morrow after the seventh Sabbath shall ye number 50 days, you shall offer a new meat offering unto the Lord. 
You shall bring out of your habitations two wave loaves of two tenths deals. They shall be of fine flour. They shall be bacon with leaven. They are the first fruits unto the Lord. And you shall offer with this bread seven lambs without blemish of the first year, and one young bullock, two rams. They shall be for a burnt offering unto the Lord with their meat offering, and their drink offerings, even an offering made by fire of sweet savor unto the Lord. So letter A. There were two loaves picturing the Jews and Gentiles becoming one in Christ's body, the church. See, because that's we're talking about Pentecost. We're talking about everything pointing towards that day of Pentecost when the Holy Ghost came down. So you think of everything that you went through in the Old Testament. All the times they gathered every year at the, at the Feast of Harvest, it was pointing to a particular point of time. And that was the time where the Holy Ghost was given. All right? So that's what the whole thing was for. <laughs> it wasn't just to have a feast. It wasn't just to get together. It wasn't even just to worship God. It was something that God kept before them as a type or a picture of something very important that was going to happen in the future. And that is what we see in Acts chapter 2. All right? And so, in that time, what happened is the Jews and the Gentiles became one in Christ. Uh, 1 Corinthians twelve thirteen it says, For by one Spirit are we all baptized into one body, whether we be Jews or Gentiles, whether we be bond or free, and have been all made to drink into one spirit. Ephesians 2.13 says, But now in Christ Jesus, ye who were sometimes were far off, are made nigh by the blood of Christ. For he is our peace, who hath made both one, and hath broken down the middle wall of partition between us. All right, letter B. It was leavened, picturing that there was still sin within the church and Israel. Why, why is this? Because Pentecost is revealing the aspect of service. It's revealing the aspect of actually being used by God to be a witness to the world. It's not a salvation, it's not a salvation truth. <laughs> it's a service truth. It's an empowering truth. So what he's doing is waving these, these, which is good for us because the fact that they were leavened showed us that even though we are left here in our sinful bodies, in a church that is not perfect, God will still use us to complete the harvest. You understand that? Now, if the first one at the Passover, if that was leavened, then I'd have a problem here. Because that's picturing the perfect life of the Lord Jesus Christ and the resurrection of Christ. But this is picturing two bodies, Israel and, and the church, the Gentiles, coming together to be empowered by God to be witnesses to the world. <laughs> I wish we'd be perfect. I wish that 50% of my time wouldn't be about problems in the church and we would just simply just be out there winning souls. But that's what the Lord was telling us. <laughs> There's still leaven in us. But I'm still going to use you. Amen? Amen? And so that's a great truth for us, really, when you think about it. It says, uh, uh, it says, since Christ has not yet returned to remove us from the presence of sin. So what has he done? He's paid the penalty 
He has destroyed the power, but he has not taken us from the presence of sin. The presence of sin is still among us. You know, uh, Ephesians 5 verse 25 says this, Husbands, love your wives even as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for it, that he might sanctify and cleanse it with the washing of water by the word. So there we have that aspect of sanctifying and cleansing the relationship, that he might bring it to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that it should be holy and without blemish. So there we see a progressive thing taking place. Uh, Matthew 13, I thought about this as well in verse 24. Another parable put he forth unto them, saying, The kingdom of heaven is likened unto a man which sowed good seed in his field. But while men slept, his enemy came and sowed tares among the wheat and went his way. But when the blade was sprung up and brought forth fruit, then appeared the tares also. So here we are as a church, we're functioning within dysfunction. <laughs> you know, and we're saying, okay, how do I know who the tares are? How do I get rid of the tares? Now, the Bible does tell us to deal with sin in the church, and sometimes there's people you have to put out of the church. But, you know, in, in the big scheme of things, sometimes you don't know who the tear is. And the Lord says, I'll sort it out. I'll sort it out. So there's that leaven, <laughs> you know. So we're a big loaf of bread here, and we got some leaven. But the Lord says, I'm still going to use you. I'm still going to empower you to do the work of God. That's wonderful. I'm glad I don't have to be sinless to be used by God. I, I should be at a place where I don't have known sin. If I have known sin, then of course God can't fill me because I'm already filled with myself. But if I've confessed sin and I'm letting him purge me and work through my life and de deal with all those inner issues, whatever they may be, and there's things in your life you don't even know about yet. There's nobody here that can say, oh, well, I don't have much to do. You've got a lot to do. There's a lot in you yet. So stop being so proud. <laughs> the sooner you humble yourself, the, the quicker God can get to work at it. Amen? And that's what it's all about. We have a long way to go, every last one of us. And so 1 John 3, 2, it says, Beloved, now are we the sons of God, and it doth not yet appear what we shall be, but we know that when he shall appear, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. So th at that point, that's when all the leaven's gone. At that point then we're completely leaven-free when we see Jesus return. But until he returns, there's leaven around us. We just can't let it fester in the church. We can't let those known issues continue in the church, even though we know we're sinners. And that's why some people say, well, why are you dealing with that person with sin when everybody's a sinner? Well, because the Bible tells us to. We have to do it. Even though everybody's a sinner, <laughs> we still have to do it, you know? We have to deal with known sin so that there is not a blasphemy against the word of God and against Christ. But knowing that, we also tell people, you know what? We fail. We do wrong things sometimes. But a Christian is one that when you fail, you get it right. You keep short accounts with God. You don't think, let things fester in the church with another person. You don't let sin go unchecked. So you'll always have leaven, but we'll have ways that we deal with it. We confess it quickly. We, we deal with our errors with other people quickly. 
If we've said something wrong, we feel convicted. And we go to that person and say, I'm sorry, I shouldn't have said that, and we move on with it. And that other person, what they'll do is they'll forgive, because the Bible commands you to. (laughs) Now, if you don't forgive, even though the other person is the one that did wrong, now you're the one that has 11. Amen? And it's just as bad as the one that did everything else. Because you're still disobedient to the Lord. It just really comes down to that. To him that knoweth to do good, and doeth it not, to him it is sin. All right? Uh, So, I thought about this passage as well in 2 Corinthians 4, verse number 6. It says, For God, who hath commanded the light to shine out of darkness, hath shined in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. So, his purpose is to shine through us in our hearts so that people can see Jesus Christ through us. That's what it's all about. It says, but we have this treasure in earthen vessels that the excellency of the power, of the, of the power may be of God and not of us. So he's left us here in our broken state, being used by him, so that when something good happens through us in our weakness, we can't claim one bit of credit for it. That's what it's saying right there. Not one bit of credit. Because you look at yourself and your, your sin nature and the things you battle through, you know, I don't deserve the credit. But if God did something through you, that's great. That was God's work through you, but you have to give him glory for it. Amen? It goes on to say, we are troubled on every side, yet not distressed. We are perplexed. Ever been perplexed? But not in despair. So when you start getting in despair because of the things around you, that's a problem. But you can't be perplexed. (laughs) Sometimes I just don't understand what's going on here. That's perplexed. But we're not in despair. So because of that issue, that complicated thing that's happening that's hard to go through, we're not allowing our, our heart to become disheartened and discouraged because of it, because now then we're not trusting God. But he says, I understand that you're perplexed because you're just man and you don't understand. <laughs> Amen. And it goes on to say, uh, persecuted, but not forsaken. So here I'm being pursued by the wicked ones, pursued by those that are against the scripture. But the Bible says, don't worry because you're not forsaken. That means as a child of God, even though I'm being pursued, I always have the Lord with me to protect me under the shadow of his wings. Amen? So we see both those sides here. It goes on to say, um, cast down, but not destroyed. You ever been cast down in your life? You felt like, man, I don't even know if there's a way back from this. That's what's being called cast down. But this is what the promise is. You will not be destroyed. Wow. The wicked will be destroyed. The wicked get destroyed. When they get put down, sometimes God takes them right out, squashes them like a bug, because there's no hope for them. There's, no, there's nothing I can do with that. But a child of God, sometimes in your cast-down state, that's where you learn the greatest truths about your God. So he says, I'll bring you down, but I'm not going to destroy you. And that's why the Bible says, the righteous man falls down seven times and gets up again. And though he fall. He shall not utterly 
be cast down. For the Lord upholdeth him with his hand. Amen. It goes also to say, it says, uh, always bearing about in the body the dying of the Lord Jesus. Now, if I'd have a perfect soul, perfect spirit, perfect soul, perfect body, I would not be bearing the dying of Jesus Christ in my body. But because I'm left here in a corrupted soul, in a corrupted body, I'm always bearing about in the body the dying of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen? That's a constant thing for the believer. Then it goes on to say that the life also of Jesus might be made manifest in our body. So as we're in this wicked world and as people see us, people do what they usually do because I'll tell you the norm is this. The norm is you will always look out for yourself first. (laughs) That's the norm. That's why they like evolution because evolution is survival of the fittest. Whoever's the strongest will survive. They like that. They like that, (laughs) you know. But that's not the scripture way. The scriptural way is that we have to die for his life to be seen through us. You have to die to your own desires and your, <clears throat> your own dreams and your own ambitions. You could grow up, I want to be an astronaut, I want to be this, and we have imaginations, and, and I've heard people grow up and they're, 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 they're relating to me their childhood dreams. <laughs> now, I understand, I had dreams too, I wanted to fly, but not with an airplane, I would like to fly like this. <laughs> but I guess we haven't gotten our technology there yet. But you know, sometimes you just need to die to that. In fact, to all of it. Someone just said, well, I've always wanted to do this. Why would God not want me to do it now? Well, I'm not saying he doesn't want you to do it. But what I'm saying is this. As a child, that's what you wanted to do. But now that you've grown up, you've got to do what God wants you to do. And it might be that which he's always laid on your heart as a child. <laughs> Maybe that dream of yours and the things that you want to do are the thing that is going to motivate you and drive you to do what God wants you to do. But it may be also something God says, no, I don't want you to do that at all. And maybe you have to die to it. Well, then what am I going to do? I've always, for 10, 20 years, that's all I wanted to do. <laughs> You're bearing about the dying. That the life of Christ may be seen through you. Amen? But this is where it's at. I mean, if we're not willing to make ourselves a living sacrifice, God will never use you. He will never use you. Imagine using this vapor of time that the Lord's given us and never be used by God. I'm not saying that you won't make money. I'm not saying you won't have a nice pickup truck. I'm not saying you won't be able to go to nice restaurants and have steak. But all that, one day you're going to cry about it. (laughs) You're going to say, I would give up all of that just to do the will of God. And when we see Christ, that's what the tears are going to be about. He'll have to wipe them away. (laughs) We'll realize how much of our life was about us and not about him. Amen. And I guarantee you, if we would all evaluate we'd find a great percentage of me there. (laughs) You know what I mean? And to start allowing the Lord to break us down where we start giving that 
and handing that away and saying, Lord, whatever you want. You know, sometimes you got to say, Lord, I'm going to give you all these desires I have and you put back in my hand what you want me to be. And sometimes he puts back in your hand the very thing that you threw at him. But now it's by faith when before it wasn't. Now it's with God's power when before it wasn't, you know, because you're doing it to please the Lord. And so the meat offering. And so I just wanted to bring out that principle. I think that's very important for us to see when this dynamic of the Feast of Pentecost here. And we're not going to get through this lesson, by the way. I didn't think so in the first place. But number two, burnt offering. uh, This is a picture of dedication. How much is left after a burnt offering? <laughs> not much. Burned thoroughly. There shall be none of it left, the Bible says, until the morning, remember, even the Passover. It had to be completely burned. Whatever was left and was not eaten, they had to put it on the fire and burn it till it was gone. That's dedication. That's what, that's what couples this, <laughs> you know, these sacrifices. So you have seven unblemished lambs, a young bull, and two rams. And rams are always a picture of service. The young bull is a picture of service. Seven unblemished lambs are the perfect, uh, the complete sacrifice that, are, that is given. So that's why the, word, the number seven has been used here. And number three, the sin offering is the atonement, a kid of goats. Now we have the judgment of the sheep and the goats. Which one's a goat? Do you think the goat's the good guy or the bad guy? <laughs> the goat is the bad because it's a sin offering. And so the, for the Day of Atonement, when they offer the, the sacrifice for the sins of Israel, they wouldn't use the lamb for that. They would use a goat. And they would kill the one goat, and they'd let the other one go out in the wilderness, which they'd call the scapegoat. It's used today. Uh, that word is a Bible word, by the way. <laughs> so when you hear an atheist use that word, you say, you can't say that word. Because it's a Bible word. Oh, oh you're biblical, I see. <laughs> There's actually several words that are like that. Uh, in your Bible, a lot, of, a lot of parts of your English language have been developed as the Bible was being developed in the English language. And so that's interesting to note. There's some words that didn't exist before the Bible. Amen. Uh, number four, peace offering. This is reconciliation, fellowship, two lambs. Why two? Because with reconciliation, there's always two parties. <laughs> you know, two have to be reconciled one to another. And so the Lord wants us to live within a reconciled state with God. He wants us to have fellowship with Him every day. He wants us to be in fellowship with the people around us or reconciled with those around us. There ought not be a broken fellowship within our, within our church body. So if you're just mad at someone because they, well, I don't like the way they do this or that or the other, I'm sorry, you are not fulfilling the scriptural pictures. (laughs) You're not living that truth that we need in order to be spirit-filled and to have power of God on our life to be a witness to the world, you know? So all these things, we have to be dedicated, (laughs) you know? Um, We have to be forgiven. We have to be reconciled, all these things. All right, I think it's 8 o'clock. I think what I'm going to do is wait till next week because this is really good stuff here. Uh, folks, um, when I get into this stuff, I, I can really go overboard. 
All right, so <laughs> if I start now, we probably won't be done till 45 minutes from now. So let's stop right now. Amen. So let's, let's bow our heads for a moment. Let's think about this last principle that we dealt with here in relation to the leaven. The leaven loaves. I want you to understand something. There's nobody saying that everybody here is sinless. It's not possible. You've all got sin. I've got sin. We will all have sin till Jesus comes. But that doesn't mean we allow sin to dominate. The Bible says that sin shall, have no, shall no longer have dominion over you. See, we've, the penalty of sin's been paid. The power of sin has been broken. And that's why it cannot have dominion over us. So it doesn't mean we're perfect. But it means that when our sin is pointed out, we get it right because it doesn't dominate. Now, if that sin is still dominating, it's because we're choosing it. And that becomes the sin. That becomes a sin. So when there's sin that's dominating in us, then that has to be dealt with personally. It has to be dealt with as a body, as a church. It has to be dealt with. So you can't throw back at everybody, we're we're all sinners. I know, but you're not understanding the scripture. Sure, we're all sinners, but not all of us have sin that's dominating. And when there's sin that's dominating, that's where we need help. Because we're not making the choice. We're not choosing. So we're not trusting the Lord that he said, sin shall no longer have dominion over you. And we're believing that it does. Or we love our sin too much, we don't want to let it go. But either case, it has to be dealt with in our life. So that's one aspect. So maybe there's some sin in your life that's dominating. You're saying, Lord, if the sin has been, the domination has been broken on my life, well then I confess that today. And I want to go on in victory. Because he always causes us to triumph in Christ Jesus. And then there's the other aspect of this that I talked about. Is that you've got a broken body. You're broken. So that the Lord can get glory. So what we need to do is just accept the fact that we will be persecuted. We will be cast down. All these things will happen. But that doesn't mean we're going to be destroyed. It doesn't mean that we're going to be forsaken. And maybe we've got to say, Lord, I'm willing to bear in my body the dying of the Lord Jesus Christ that his life can be seen through me. And that may be taking that great desire you have, that thing that you know, is driving you, saying, Lord, I've never put this on the altar before. He could have even dressed it up in religion. I'm going to use this for God. Well, that's not your choice. That's God's choice. You have to put that in God's hands and say, Lord, if you want to use this for for yourself, you can, but I'm going to let you choose. You've got to get out of the driver's seat and let the Lord choose for your life. 